Good morning, and welcome to episode 568 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, back at home in New York, and joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, Ben. Hi. I don't like the day after the World Series so much. There's all this news that comes out uh-huh. that, that feels so mundane, feels so inconsequential compared to the things that we were thinking about yesterday. Yesterday, we're thinking about Game 7 of the World Series, and we're watching the Royals and the Giants and Madison Bumgarner doing amazing things. And then today, I scan the headlines, and it's White Sox decline option on Felipe Paulino, and it's just off-season mode so suddenly I, I wish there were just a news moratorium for a few days so that I could transition into winter winter baseball it's just too abrupt from the ultimate drama of World Series baseball to boring transactions we're like the old man who gets out of jail in Shawshank Redemption <laughs> yeah Brooks was here that's, yeah exactly. that's what he writes that is what he writes <laughs> <laughs> I, for a second, I thought that I thought that Brooks was at the World Series. I got confused. But anyway, we are Brooks. Yeah, we're Brooks. <laughs> uh, uh, you, so. know, you know, I've found that uh, one way to enjoy the day after the World Series, um, which you could try, is to be on the winning team. Uh, yeah, then you get to do all, all kinds of cool stuff. Or just sleep. I mean, don't you get the feeling that, like, when Buster Posey said he was going to sleep all day, didn't you just think that like that's the best day ever? Like way better than winning the World Series is the day after it when you just sleep. I mean, how great must it be just to be a baseball player whose season is over for one thing? I mean, yeah. yes. Oh it, my gosh, six months, I mean, months off. It's just like stretching ahead of you this gulf of time where you just don't need to do anything. I mean, that's not really true. Of course, they're preparing for the upcoming season or maybe they're dealing with contract stuff but or getting jobs as as mailmen i've heard that sometimes (laughs) baseball players do that sure yeah but i mean what a release that must be as much as they like playing baseball when you've been doing it for seven months and traveling constantly and not seeing your family and not being at home and just having to answer questions from people like us all, all the time it just i mean the grind of baseball and then suddenly the season's over and if you are a champion, then you don't even have to feel bad about the season being over. You you did everything you set out to do. You achieved the best possible thing, and now you have all this time. Although I guess you only have five months instead of six. Willie Mays sold cars in Burlingame. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I'm, that's what I just read. Burlingame is uh, like three train stops for me. Uh, Willie McCovey worked for a uniform company. Yeah, sure. Lots of restaurants. Uh-huh. Restaurants. Uh, what did yeah, Ross Oldendorf I, did something recently? Ross Oldendorf was like a, he spent part of his winter at the Department of Agriculture. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was uh, that was just a few yeah, years ago. He was an, he was an intern. He was an intern. Yeah, the most exciting offseason I've had. Wow, this is a great picture of him. You're on probably on a different page than yeah. I am, but there's a great picture of I, him. He sent in 
sent an email inquiring about an internship and attached his resume. <laughs> I guess it was probably a good move for Russell and Dorf. Just, I mean, what is Russell and Dorf up to these days other than interning for the Department of Agriculture? He All right, Ben, was, uh, game on. Game on. How much oh, did Russell is earnings? Yes. Oh, boy. Um, okay. I mean, Russell and Dorf was around for a while. He, he got several years in. I don't know whether he ever... I don't know whether he ever got past his first six, but all right, I'll say Ross Ollendorf. I'll say he made three point five million. Uh, I was gonna say three point one. Oh. I, yeah, that's a. You're gonna feel <laughs> pretty good about the over, I think. All right, I'm looking it up. All right, Ross Ollendorf, three point two seven. Ooh, wow. <laughs> so, so you I, win. I narrowly, narrowly <laughs> win. Uh, we know I was counting his, his salary as an intern for the Department of Agriculture, so <laughs> I think that pushes it towards me. Quote, what has made Ross's time here especially valuable is the fact that he didn't just want to take a tour of the building. He showed up ready to roll up his sleeves and engage on substantive issues that interested him, said Oren Evans, a department spokesman. <laughs> I like that it led to a memorable winter. He met Jim Bunning, a Hall of Fame pitcher. He's Ross Ollendorf. He's met a lot of players. <laughs> Can you like? He probably was like, "Wow, you played professional base. You played professional baseball in the majors." <laughs> so did my boss. <laughs> Ollendorf pitched uh, fifteen innings in the minors this year. Uh huh. As an intern, actually, <laughs> he didn't have a job. He, he was an intern, but. He didn't just want to show up and, and take tickets and, and wear the mascot uniform. He he took an interest in substantive issues like the score of the game. Yeah. And he pitched. He pitched a little bit. Got to just kill time between off-season internships somehow. Um, so there was uh, some his other... Main, his, his main focus was tracking the migration of cattle diseases. Right. Yeah. Did you already say I think, that? No, I didn't, but I think I... I remember something about a thesis he wrote, maybe, that was related to that. Is that, I think? I don't know why I retained this information, but uh, that sounds vaguely familiar. Um, so there was news about... A whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What do his And what do his teammates think of how he spent his winter? Quote, <laughs> I think a lot of them wish they could have had some of the same opportunities. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm skeptical. Okay. Yeah, Ollendorf majored in operations research and financial engineering at Princeton. His the oh, that's right. His thesis was about the draft. He, he looked at uh, he looked at the top 100 picks from 89 to 93, and he tried to determine the value of the picks. He basically did a a blog post that people have done on the internet, looking at the expected value of draft picks. Ollendorf had a 116 ERA plus in 2013 as a swingman, throwing 60 innings. So it's kind of amazing that it's he... basically Madison Bumgarner. <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's amazing that he uh, could only pitch in Triple uh, A. Did he? He must have gotten hurt. He must have been recovering. Must have gotten hurt. I mean, he is a pitcher. Yeah. Although he pitched, yeah, he pitched in May. He pitched in, yeah, he pitched in May, and then he didn't pitch until the end of august so so that was today's russell and dwarf news not even today's this wasn't even 
timely. This wasn't even new Rasselendorf news. He had a low back strain that put him on the 60-day DL. Mm, okay. And there was news about the Astros TV network, which we've t- talked about from time to time. There was a, a federal bankruptcy judge approved a Chapter 11 plan that will allow AT&T and DirecTV to purchase Comcast Sportsnet Houston and relaunch it later this year as Root Sports Houston, which seems to indicate that people will actually be able to watch Astros games next year. So our jokes about the Astros getting zero ratings are probably behind us. Or twice as funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If it happens. Uh Uh-huh. And there was also news about a new way, a team. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. I I got distracted. I was supposed to write about that. Oh, there's yeah. I, I didn't, I there's forgot. a there's a Phillies way, and the Phillies were sorely in need of a way because they came in 25th in your way power rankings out of what 29. So they were or 30, I guess. Except there were a couple teams that didn't technically have ways. I think but, there was one, but that got them a very high ranking. Yeah. So the the Phillies way before you summarized it as hitting, <laughs> uh, there wasn't really a clear philosophy it was one of those kind of gritty winning scrapping ways and so matt gelb of the philadelphia inquirer reported that ruben amaro unveiled a phillies way handbook at the organization's meetings this week and no details really in this article at least about what that way consists of it is some sort of manual but you know, probably reminiscent of all of the other manuals. But if there is something that separates the Phillies way from all the others way, other ways, we will have to wait to find out what it is. Mm-hmm. But that's exciting news. The Phillies are now officially With... a rebuilding team and they have a way. So this is interesting, too, because the when I wrote about the the Phillies way, my quote about the Phillies way was from Ryan Sandberg, who said that um, the Philly way... Uh, the, the quote was, I remember really learning the game here. Sandberg, of course, was a Philly when he was a, a rookie. I really remember learning the game here. That's what I maintain the rest of the time, playing hard and aggressive, getting your work in and going about the game the right way. Uh, that's what he said of the Philly way. And so Sandberg is the manager. And so I, don't, I, I think we should probably assume that this would just be a codification of the way that he already referenced, right? Mm. Yeah, that could be. You would have to think that there would be no no particular change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. All the, oh, yeah. So th- there were multiple references to the Philly way. So maybe the Philly way, because uh, I had a second reference in which uh, they uh, talked about, Charlie Manuel talked about the Philly way as being different than Ryan Zandberg had described it. And so maybe this is really about unifying the Philly way under under one cover or mm-hmm. getting, you know, exercising the Charlie Manuel way. Maybe Charlie Manuel took the way astray. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's more of a Pat Gillick way. I don't know. That would that would be a good way, probably. Right now, it doesn't seem like they've done enough to change their ranking. No. No, they would probably, by default, though, move up to 19 through 13, which I guess would now be 20 through 13, which is essentially the, the median way, and it just means we have a book. Uh, right that, uh-huh. that's what the if you're if you have a book and that's that's if instead of describing a philosophy it describes your instruction manual 
unless you are, unless your instruction manual is a seminal instruction manual, as with the Orioles and um, a couple of the Dodgers and a couple of other teams, uh, unless it's that, you are simply a mediocre way team, a team with a a, a way that describes a, a book, but not a philosophy. So that sounds more like what the Philly way would would be. Mm-hmm. Although it it also I'll have to see whether it's the Philly way or the Phillies way. You get the tiebreaker is whether you have an S. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay, so before we before we really transition into off season mode, I want to talk about the two teams that were in the World Series and and. Whether we learned anything from them, whether we learned anything maybe in particular from the Royals, and then also how we appraise the Giants. And I feel like we've had maybe three different (laughs) how should we appraise the Giants conversation on this podcast over the years, but they keep doing things that make us have it again. So we will talk a bit about that, but I will start with Danny Duffy because this was a storyline throughout October, and we talked about it. We had Doug Thorburn on to talk about it. Everyone wondered why Danny Duffy wasn't pitching. The Royals said there was nothing wrong with his shoulder. There was speculation about his mechanics being out of whack. So finally, after Game 7, Ned Yost came clean, told Andy McCullough that he was suffering from an injury, not the shoulder, but a stress reaction in his ribcage, a crack on the outside of the bone, which limited him to two or three innings at a time. So the the plan was for him to start in the postseason, as one would expect. And then this injury cropped up in his last start of the season. And Yost just uh, didn't didn't want to say anything. Uh, as, as Andy wrote, the Royals kept Duffy's ailment quiet for all of October. Yost wanted Duffy to loom as a weapon in the bullpen one capable of extended duty, even though he knew Duffy had to work on a shortened leash. So this is interesting. I mean, it's not a shock or anything, but it it's a reminder that we probably shouldn't freak out about pitchers who seem like they should be used and are not used because there's often a good reason why they're not being used. And it's, I mean, we I, I kind of went back and tried to find a quote where Yost or Duffy outright lied, and just in a in a cursory look, I couldn't really find anything. All of their all of their quotes in retrospect are sort of defensible. Like Duffy would say that his shoulder felt fine, or they'd say that he felt better, or that he was he was ready to go, or something like that. But they wouldn't outright say he is one hundred percent. There is nothing wrong with him whatsoever. So. This is a perfectly defensible thing that teams should do and probably do more than we think they do, I think. I, I would guess that there are many nagging injuries that, that teams are fully aware of that we never hear about, and maybe they are responsible for things that we complain about and wonder about and question. And uh, it's probably a useful thing to keep in mind for Next October, whoever the Danny Duffy of next October is, there, there's a reason for these things. I mean, there's – yeah, go ahead. But, but here's the thing, though, is that now next time a team does something unusual with a pitcher and we go, oh, he's probably hurt, that pitcher gets all pissed off at everybody and saying, I'm not hurt. Why are you guys speculating? You don't know anything about my body. I mean, 
don't they know we have to talk about things? Like, <laughs> it's it seems to me fine to uh, to to just say we don't we don't talk about health. Like, it's just not a thing we do. Okay, mm-hmm. we're not going to talk about health. We're not going to answer questions about player health. It's our business, and it's not it's not your business. But they don't. Ninety percent of the time, I mean, if you go to a manager's availability, the first five or six questions are. How's this guy doing? He had his, you know, he threw. What's the next stage for him in his in his comeback? It was yeah. he sore the next day. Don't answer any of those if you can't. If you're going to plead the fifth, you got to plead the fifth the whole time because mm-hmm. otherwise, you're lying. <laughs> so <laughs> I I think that uh, I'm I'm somewhat annoyed partly because it, I think that um, you're being more generous than they deserve. Um, mm. I haven't gone through and looked at all the quotes, but I think that there was some misleading going on. Um, yeah, definite misleading. And two, and this is not their fault. They're nice people. I have nothing against Danny Duffy or Ned Yost, but uh, I do. I feel like uh, someone has to stick up for all the people who've been criticized by uh, baseball players over the years for speculating on their health. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Stop being liars, and we won't. We won't. <laughs> yeah, it's. I remember early in his tenure, Joe Girardi got in trouble for this kind of thing because he was very cagey about players' health and seemed to make some misleading statements. And it was something that writers wrote about and got annoyed about. And I don't know whether fans particularly care about that, whether it bothers them or whether it just bothers writers because it makes it harder for writers to do their job but for a manager I mean there's there is some incentive to be honest with the press so that you develop some trust and just from a pure job security standpoint you you probably want the writers on your side to some extent so yeah I I mean if if there were a manager who just refused to talk about any injuries um that would I, that would probably not go over well with the people assigned to cover him, but there's nothing they could really do about it. And maybe once one manager did it, it would catch on once someone broke that ice, which I, I hope doesn't happen. I mean, it's nice to know something, even if we're getting far from perfect information. If you switch to the hockey system where it's like upper body injury is the most specific anything ever gets or or football where a guys listed as questionable or whatever and everything is a game time decision and you never know what exactly is going on in baseball we do at least get the illusion of knowing what is happening because managers say things but i it is something i thought about because just looking at the pre and post game quotes in the world series the questions are so specific like how many pitches can this go can this guy go tonight how is he available and and these are, you know, and like people literally asking, what is your strategy for whatever? When are you going to get this guy out of the game? It's like they should not disclose what their strategy is. There's yeah. no advantage to them in doing that. You, you would not want to just advertise what you're going to do to the people in the other dugout. So. All right. So I. In the, okay, Ben, I, you're right. I, you've you've convinced me that my just tell us nothing uh, solution <laughs> sucks for us. So uh, <laughs> you might want to edit that out and pretend that I did. Uh, so what is the solution? How do we? Because I don't I don't want to be lied to. Partly be for I don't actually mind being lied to in in one sense. Uh, and I you know 
I, I encourage these people to do whatever it takes to win. However, there are two reasons. One, I think that telling lies destroys your soul. And I do feel for these people's soul. So I don't want them to be in a position where they have to lie. I, I think that it's much better to be in a position where you get to say, I decline to comment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is that uh, if you know that 5% of answers are lies, then you don't know which 5% they are, then all the data that you have becomes uh, tarnished and to some degree worthless. So mm-hmm. Uh, so what should we do? Could we? What I would like baseball to do, since I don't actually care about games that happened yesterday, particularly, I I would love it if all this stuff, including scouting reports, including internal trade discussions, every single thing that happened in the game, was put in in a you know in, a, in storage in a lockbox, and then sometime in the future when it was no longer relevant to the game uh, being played, to the strategy uh, of the next game. Uh, they would sh- they would show it to us so that we could <laughs> every team could have a time capsule that right, we would like, open up five years later. Exactly, like there was this thing like recently where like a bunch of uh, of uh, members of the IRA gave, mm-hmm. gave oral histories to like a professor in Boston or something. Yeah, and that, the problem was, <laughs> that didn't go so well. Though. No, they didn't wait long enough. Like they screwed it up. They didn't wait long enough, and so then uh, it created this you know huge big problem because people were like oh wow that's interesting and and awful mm-hmm. so uh however the idea of sharing your information with academia uh has a long history and uh and i consider us academia uh-huh. so that's all yeah yeah i don't know what other solution there would be because you can't be if you're honest all the time and then suddenly you start dissembling and you say no comment in one specific case, then that is obviously a tell that you are not telling something. So that doesn't seem like a workable solution. But anyway, as things stand right now, Danny Duffy, probably a good reminder that we shouldn't necessarily believe anything anyone says ever. So Waka also hurt. (laughs) And uh, is there anybody else who we now know was probably hurt? Uh, I, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder now if the, yeah, so if you're, we don't generally talk about, you know, fantasy strategy in, in our, in in this podcast, because we don't know that much about fantasy strategy, but if you're, if Michael Waco is number 100 on your big board, uh, this morning, now that you've re-evaluated in in light of this Danny Duffy lie, and you probably think that Michael Waco was hurt Mm -hmm. in in uh, October, just like Danny Duffy. Does he drop to 130 on your big board? Probably not that far. Because I would say if if you are pitching at all, it's probably not something of long-term concern, I would think, which seems to be the case with Duffy. Like, this is not something that threatens his 2015. If it were, they probably would have just shut him down rather than keep him around in case he could chipping an inning here or there. So I would guess that if you are active, it's not something that would linger into the following season. But any injury could be a possible risk factor for some more serious injury. So sure, maybe drop him down a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Royals, I I just we've we've seen all that the Royals have to offer now in the postseason. They won the most games it's possible to win without winning the World Series. I just want to take stock of whether we learned anything about team construction, about whether there's something that wins in the playoffs. Just put a 
put a ribbon on that discussion that we had heading into October. Have we changed our opinions at all? Did the Royals change your mind? Do you feel that they were a better team in the postseason than they were during the regular season, true talent-wise? And if they were, is it a repeatable skill? Is there anything you can do to build a team like the Royals that will excel in the postseason? Oh, I I didn't really. I mean, uh, d- somebody didn't somebody write that close games are not more common in the postseason. I did. I they are very very slightly more common, but mm-hmm. yeah, like a couple percentage points more common. Yeah, I I mean I I I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit, but it it felt like the Royals were a team that was well suited to the types of games that were abnormally common in this postseason. Yeah. But but this postseason is not the only postseason. I mean, w- we know what a postseason is like. Um, and it's usually, you know, more like, to some degree, more like the regular season than this year's was. So and you, I don't... you found that the lower scoring environment has not necessarily produced closer games, right? You wrote something uh, for Fox about that? Like, there's. I uh, did, yeah, I did. I looked at whether games are closer in low offensive environments, which uh, for this, for the purposes of this, I, I sort of defined it generationally or, or by era, and found that the margin of games is actually it is smaller with fewer runs scored and the margin at various stages in the game is also smaller. So like for instance, after <clears throat> the first inning in, um, in 1994, the average margin was like 0.96 runs. And now this year it was like 0.78. So the games mm, are okay. much, cl- but, but they're much closer, but that's an illusion because mm. there's also a lot fewer runs scored going forward. And so in fact, Right. There are fewer fewer games are uh, are uh, have the fewer game. There's there are fewer game state changes. So you were more likely to blow a lead in 1994, or you were more likely to come back in 1994, even though the margin was usually larger than you are in 2010. So the games are uh, closer by kind of absolute numerical values, but they are actually farther apart. In real significant in, in in the ways that actually matter for competitiveness. Yeah. So it's not as if we should expect all postseasons to be like this postseason, as long as scoring levels remain where they are. This was just weird, probably. Well, oh, I think this was definitely weird. I mean, the yeah. the I, I've I, I don't know, maybe it, shoot I shouldn't say anything is definite because I haven't looked, but. Uh, this year, as we talked about, was much different than the last two years, just in terms of how many close games there were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. So that doesn't suggest to me that if if the Royals were built well for a postseason where every game was a one-run game, that, that doesn't really tell us that they are built well for next postseason necessarily. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, the a lot was made of the speed, and the speed was really fun to watch, and and it helped. But the range between the the best base running team and the worst base running team in a typical season is you know three wins or something. It's not 
usually a difference maker. I guess you could say it was a difference maker in the Royals case since they barely made the playoffs. So it, it made the difference for them. But it's it's, you know, it's like the third or fourth or fifth thing, sixth thing on the list when you're checking off qualities that a team has. It's almost an afterthought. Oh, they're a good base running team. It's it's nice. It's a tiebreaker usually. And and that was kind of the case. I mean, in the the wild card game, of course, was not representative of the Royals speed. They that was a crazy, crazy display of speed and steals that will not be repeated and, and was not repeated. Um and in the World Series they stole one base in the whole seven game series. And Terrence Gore, who was, you know, the the darling of the, the wild card game and the, the ALDS and a interesting story, certainly, was not a factor. He didn't get into a game, did he? I mean he did he was he was not called upon and I and think he was a trail. I think he was a trail runner. Oh, one. that's right. Yeah, and that was a weird. That was weird when he yeah. came in with without second base open ahead of him. Yeah, and what did they? Didn't they only? St- I don't think they stole a base. I think they stole like one base or something like that against Baltimore. I think they went like one for three in that series or something like that. Yeah, right. And pitchers who were facing them, Dave Cameron noted, just held the ball forever. Maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe it was just not having Derek Norris behind the plate, just having catchers who could throw, catchers uh, and pitchers who were paying attention to the runners. So unlike John Lester, who would not ever throw over there. So so the speed was not really the factor that it maybe seemed initially in that wildcard game. And I mean, it, it got them through that game, so that was important. But beyond that, it was kind of uh it it wasn't a huge factor and then i mean the bullpen was great but as we've talked about it sort of relies on their having a having a lead or being in a game seven where you just use everyone if they don't get that early lead then it's not as valuable to have those guys and they're not a great offensive team as they showed all season long maybe they're better than they showed all season long but but there's, it's just a low ceiling way to construct an offense. I think they, they did it as well as it could be done. They, they did the contact and speed thing perfectly. They really executed that model of team building well. But I don't think that model of team building has the same ceiling that a, a team that walks and hits home runs and also does some other things has. So, and the bullpen, as great as it was... Maybe that is a more of a factor than we give it credit for if you have a bullpen like that, but I don't know how repeatable it is. I don't know how well you can plan to have a bullpen like that. I mean, those three guys, Davis last year was a struggling starter. Herrera spent some time in AAA. He had such a shaky first half last year, and... Of course, this year they looked totally dominant. They were totally dominant, but they're not going to repeat that crazy performance again. They're going to allow home runs again at some point. Herrera had that remarkable ERA, didn't give up a home run all season, but it was kind of weird. Like He struck out a lot fewer batters than he had the year before and didn't get more grounders or anything. So it was sort of strange how he was doing it the whole time. He was lumped in with Davis and Herrera, but isn't really in their class, I don't think, or isn't quite on their level. So those guys could come back next year and 
pitch just as well as they did this year, and they could all have three ERAs quite easily. So, and as if, as you found, the, the bullpen is the, the least stable thing about a team from year to year. There's, like, no correlation in how good a bullpen is from one well, year to the next. So, And not only that, but, I mean, imagine that the lesson from this is that to win in October, uh, what you really need is to have an elite bullpen. That that way lies doom for any GM who sets out for it. Because mm-hmm. we see teams all the time going, oh, well, we need to get three elite relievers. Let's go sign these three guys to four-year deals uh, and watch them immediately suck. Uh, I mean, it's not just that it's hard to predict. It's that pursuing that, chasing that with too much vigor is how you ruin your team. I mean, the Dodgers spent $30 million on a bullpen this year. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, they, that's a good yeah, example. We it, thought they were going to have a good one. <laughs> yeah. We thought, this, like, like, if you had come into the season thinking that having a good bullpen is the way to succeed in October, then you would have put the Dodgers close to the top of the list of teams that were optimized for the postseason. And the yet, only, by the time they got yeah. there, it was a weakness. The only way that you can make sure that your bullpen is elite is to take all of your starters and put them in the bullpen. That's the only way. And so maybe that's, uh, maybe in 30 years we will think, oh, well, that, that is the lesson, is that you should take all your starters and put them in relief. But we're not there yet, and it's probably not true. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So, I, I mean, whatever the Royals did, and they did lots of things well, but, I mean, they barely made it into the playoffs for one thing. That was kind of in doubt until the last weekend almost so if they had had followed some model that worked in the postseason but didn't work as well in the regular season that in itself is very risky because if you if you build this hypothetical october juggernaut that is not as well constructed for the regular season you might never get to the postseason and that would defeat the purpose so i i don't and you know i don't know that I'm trying to take some lesson from the way that the Royals were built, and it it doesn't seem to me like there is some lasting... I mean, the fact that they built from within mostly and stockpiled prospects and did a good job scouting a lot of those guys, that that obviously works. I mean, that's that's not a new thing, building with scouting and, and getting young guys and developing them and everything. I mean, that is a tried and true formula but it doesn't i'm having a hard time finding the new thing that the royals did that other teams could copy in the future that would lead to the same success that the royals had um and it was really fun to watch and and maybe they'll be back i don't think they're going to fall apart or anything i mean they they have enough of their core remaining that I, i think they'll be you know pretty good for a while like good enough that you could imagine that they will make it back to the playoffs and that in itself is valuable in that you just need to be good enough to have a shot at it in the multiple wild card era but i don't know what the lesson in roster construction from the royals is and i don't want to discount their defense either that's obviously a big part of their success but that was a big part of their regular season success too if if you want to say that defense is still underrated and the Royals were a good reminder that defense matters, then I'm on board with that much. But that was a big part of why people expected the Royals to have some success this season. I don't know whether it's really a postseason specific strategy. 
incur. Okay. And so then there's the Giants discussion. And talking about whether a team is a dynasty or not is sort of a silly discussion. It's one of those discussions where it just depends on how the person defines that word. So that's maybe not the most productive debate. If you define a dynasty as a team that has to win a bunch of World Series in a row, then they are not a dynasty. If you define it as a team that wins a bunch of World Series in some fairly short span of time, then they are a dynasty. So I I don't know whether to even talk about the D word, but... I think it does. I think it actually does this team more credit, and I agree with you. By the way, I, I don't intend to take this in that direction. However, I think it does the Giants more credit to say this is not a dynasty, and to say that they've actually had uh, so much roster turnover, and you know, even the roster that hasn't turned over has taken effort to keep together. That in fact they have built at least two distinct championship caliber teams, which to me is more impressive than building one championship caliber team that wins multiple mm-hmm. uh, World Series. Yeah, I, it's really impressive. I mean, I mean, from any perspective, it is incredibly impressive. It is incredibly difficult to win three World Series in five years. It's just, it, I mean, it comes down to whether you care that they are the best team in the regular season or not, or over that longer sample. I mean, over that five-season span, they had the seventh most wins of any team. They failed to make the playoffs entirely in the two years that they didn't make the World Series. So, and and they haven't really, I wouldn't say, had a an argument as the best team in baseball in any one of those years. So it's, I mean, it's kind of like when we have those Hall of Fame debates and someone says well, he was never the best player in his league in any year or something, and that doesn't really mean anything maybe he was the the third best player every year which is really impressive too from 2000 to 2005 the giants won 90 games or from 2000 to 2004 they won 90 games all five years and they won 95 or more three times in this in this run they've won 90 games twice and they have not yet won 95 Uh uh-huh so if you if you were looking ahead to the next five years and you could take either the barry bonds giants or the Buster Posey Giants, and you get them at the same ages and everything, same teams, but you have to replay the seasons. Which ones would you take? The one that won three World Series or the one that won none but made one? I, I refuse your hypothetical. I, I just re- I refuse to take I, I refuse to get into the uh, process argument with the Giants at this point. I'm simply content to say that they have outplayed everybody else by so much. Uh-huh. That they deserve a few weeks where we can turn off our brains a little bit and just appreciate how astoundingly well they have played in ten consecutive series. I mean, it's astounding. It's it is. brilliant. Yeah, I, and I, I honestly <laughs> just am not interested in the prediction game <laughs> right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, also not. I'm also not. By the way, not interested in writing a 340 page book about how every team should be built like the 2010 to 2014 Giants. So, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're so if, if you were. I mean, the story is basically the same for this team that it was for 2010, even though it's a lot of different players. Sabian has generally been very good when you don't give him much money. Uh, he has a way of finding, you know, busted guys who mm-hmm. turn out to be really great. Uh, these, like, low-grade pickups, minor league signings in December that end up being three- to five-win players for him. 
and his first-round picks over the course of like a seven-year period when he wasn't giving them away so he could sign Michael Tucker uh, were all were all really great. He just hit on a number of number one picks. And so uh, I wrote two years ago when we were trying to figure out what made the Giants uh, at that point two out of three uh, run, uh, you know, what, what propelled it. I, you know, I basically concluded that the best, the best story you can tell is that they had uh, maybe the best three-year run of first-round picks in history. That at that point, Lincecum, Posey, and Bumgarner, this was before Lincecum had, uh, had had his two terrible seasons, they were, you know, on pace by Pakoda's 10-year markers, uh, 10-year projections, on pace to challenge the best three-year run of any team's first-round picks ever. And you can throw in there Matt Cain, uh, if you want, you could throw in there Zach Wheeler, although that wouldn't help you very much. Um, and uh, so, obviously, getting uh, 20 to 60 war careers out of your first-round picks is a good way to run an organization. I haven't seen any any real reason to think that Sabian uh, is more skilled drafting first-round picks than anybody else. He had a long drought before Kane, and he hasn't drafted squat since Wheeler. So, uh, I mean, he had, it just, I, I guess panic is contributing, but, um, uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those, one of those things. He, he had a really good run doing the thing he's supposed to do. Uh, I don't know that, uh, that's a strategy exactly, but scout well, uh, pick the guy you think is best, develop him as well as you can and have him turn out great is, uh, it's a, it's a thing you could do if you're, if you're up to it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I more or less agree and wrote basically some of that in my, my game seven recap that they're kind of, uh, they're a, if they're a dynasty, they're a dynasty of the modern baseball era where the most important thing is getting there and they have gotten there three out of five years. And once there, they have outplayed everyone. And I don't know whether, whether they would have outplayed everyone uh, if you had somehow simulated those seasons thousands of times, but maybe that's not all that interesting a question right now. They they did. They they won those series. They played really well. And if you, I mean, you'd have to attribute it to, unless you think that they are the team that is just built for October in some way, you'd have to conclude that it was either some amount of good timing in that they played some of their best baseball at the time when it mattered most, or you could attribute some of it to, to character if you were so inclined or chemistry or, or whatever. And I don't know whether it was that or not. It happened and it's really impressive that it's happened, that it happened and it was improbable that it happened and, and they should feel very good about themselves. <laughs> and uh, we should celebrate it for for what it is, which is an incredible feat. I'm, I'm actually glad. I think it's, it, in a weird way, it strengthens the dynasty claim that they didn't make it in 2011 and 2013. If they had and gotten bounced in the division series, then they're just a team that won three <laughs> out of five postseasons. Yeah. But as it is, they're a team that has won 10 straight series if you get the wild card which you shouldn't but i am uh because what else are you gonna do um so that really makes it stronger it 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 is the greatest gift uh that they could ever 
you know, give to historians that they sucked so bad last year and that they collapsed so badly in August and September of September, mm-hmm. uh, August and September of 2011, uh, that makes the narrative nice and clean. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So that's a wrap on the World Series and the Royals and the Giants for now. And uh, we did create a Twitter account for the show, as threatened. It is at EWPod. It's not all that useful, to be honest. It's a it's an account where you can see... Wait. Yeah. So, oh, the, uh, okay. This is not... <laughs> I, I feel like this is... Like with the podcast itself, uh, I see immediate mission creep. <laughs> uh-huh. Like immediate. You couldn't do one day and <laughs> stick to what this was supposed to be about. <laughs> yeah, it is. Right now it's mostly. Don't I will... follow this. This is a terrible <laughs> account. Wow. I am reporting you for spam, in fact. <laughs> Boy. The purpose is to tell people when we are recording so that they will not wait up if we are not recording that day. And I will also notify them when episodes are published so that they can find them there. They already follow you. You already notify them when it's published. I really think that you, instead of having the default, yes, we're recording, it should only default to, no, we're not recording. And uh, and on those nights when people should not stay up, anyway, you can handle it. <laughs> we're doing okay. Just trying to expand our social media presence. That's what all the consultants are doing these days. Um, okay, and you can, of course, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Now that there are no games, we will be answering emails regularly again, so we welcome them at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. We hope that you will support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And if you've enjoyed the show this season, if you're happy that it's not ending, you can show us a token of your gratitude by telling a friend about the show or leaving a rating or review on iTunes so that we can expand the audience. And we hope that you will have a wonderful weekend. We will be back next week. I've got tea again. This is great.